are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Labor Day weekend. Um, if you're a guest with us, welcome. Uh, my name is Austin Baker. I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel Church. Can we bring the lights up a little bit? That'd be awesome. I appreciate that. I want to see your beautiful faces on this Labor Day weekend. Um, you should be getting rest. It's Labor Day weekend, so you should be all, you know, bright and perky. Um, but welcome, welcome. I'm Austin, lead pastor here. Uh, I want to welcome you uh, this weird, awesome weekend. Glad you could join us. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, um, we are trekking through the letter of First Peter. And so we have been there for the last four weeks. We're going to be there until Advent, so uh, we'll be there a while. But up until this point in the letter, Peter's established our identity in Christ. He has, uh, he has said that we are elect exiles. And for the first 12 verses of chapter 1, the first 12 verses of this letter, he spells out in even greater detail just what makes up this identity as Christ followers, as elect exiles. And in chapter thir- or excuse me, verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter makes a turn from where we've previously been in the last 12 verses. Up to, to this point in the letter, he's established who we are in Christ that was rooted in what Christ had done in the resurrection, namely. And now he's turning the page, so to speak, and he is getting into what we do, our actions, that flow out of who we are as believers. And there's a saying when it comes to uh, identity and commands concerning believers in the scriptures, and it's this saying that the indicative always precedes the imperative. Right? The indicative always precedes the imperative. Or in other words, it could be said another way, what has, been, uh, what has been done always comes before what we do. So what Christ has done for his people, establishing who we are, always comes before commands for us to obey. You see, all throughout, you see this all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians, the book of Romans, for example. You think about Romans, the first 11 chapters of Romans are some of the richest theology, beginning with our sinfulness and Christ's sacrifice and all the benefits that are now ours because of what Christ has done for us and the cross and the resurrection, on and on for 11 chapters. And it's not until chapter 12, so 12 chapters into a 16-chapter letter, that Paul gives his first command. Therefore, in light of the first 11 chapters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The indicative always precedes the imperative. And to mess this up, to flip-flop the order, to put the imperative in front of the indicative is to have a false gospel. To see the commands of Christ as dictating who we are first and foremost, that is self-righteousness. Seeking to earn God's salvation, to earn our identity through our obedience, rather than this is who you are, therefore obey. We don't want to be legalists. We don't want to be filled with self-righteousness. It's contrary to what the New Testament says Christ followers are to be. So we do not obey in order to earn identity. We have identity, therefore we obey. That's what Peter begins to do here in verse 13. He has established who we are in Christ based on what Christ has done. And now he begins to unpack the question, okay, how then shall we live? How shall we live? So I want to pray for us again. And I want to get into this great text God has given us in His grace. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise You that we don't have to earn Your favor. 
That we don't have to wake up each morning wondering if you're for us or against us. We are free from that because of Christ. That Christ has earned your favor and therefore we are in him and we have your favor. So Lord, I pray today that you remind us of who we are. You remind us of who you are. And may we just stand in awe and wonder. May we behold you in all your majesty. And may you change us and compel us to live holy lives. Because you, O oh God, are holy. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as, as we just said, Peter shifts here in the text beginning to mark out the imperative here, uh, beginning in verse 13, and he centers our obedience and our identity as children of God. That God is our Father and we are his children. That the Father possesses these qualities that Peter begins to lay out here in verses 13 through, 13 through 21. And so too, we as his children are to also emulate these qualities, right? Children of God, we put our faith and hope in Christ for our salvation. We are adopted by God, Romans chapter 8 sons and daughters of the king, and now we too carry his characteristics into our lives. So starting in verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter begins a new section here, unpacking characteristics of the Christian life. And so with verse 13, Peter kind of gives us our thesis that's going to mark us for the remaining verses up until chapter 2, verse 10. So let's read verse 13 again. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to sum that up into one sentence. One sentence is going to frame up our time together uh, this week. And it's this. As children of God, our hope is in future grace while possessing a present realism. So as children of God, our hope is in future grace, grace that is coming, while possessing a present realism. As children of God, in verse 13, Peter starts establishing this fact that our hope is not gained through idleness or wishful thinking or some kind of pie-in-the-sky optimism, you know, the kind of disingenuous view of life where everything's always hunky-dory, there's never anything wrong, that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, like all that stuff, which, I mean, that is true, right? But at the same time, a lot of times that masks real pain, right? We say these trite truisms all the time, and try to mask what we're feeling on the inside. We really are hurting. We really are broken. That we need Christ. Rather, Peter here is communicating the truth that in order to hold on to the hope in this world, it takes a firm resolve in one's mind that this world will continue to be dark and difficult until Christ comes. But we know by God's grace, through the Spirit's power, that rescue is coming. That grace is being brought to us, to use the language of verse 13. Verse 13 begins with the word, therefore. So, therefore links together what's come before and what comes after. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So this, this phrase, preparing your minds for action, it's the, Hebrew, the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament saying, gird up your loins, or the American English saying, roll up your sleeves. Right? We're about to get to work. We're about to get to work. You're preparing for the task at hand, the task before you. So you're preparing yourself for action, and at the same time, you are being sober-minded. Right? This could literally mean 
be sober, like don't be intoxicated. It could mean that. But I think Peter here is using the phrase uh, in different ways. He uses it actually two more times in his letter. Once he uses it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded uh, for the sake of your prayers. And then he uses it again in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So taking all three of these uses Peter has here and putting them all together, it appears Peter's primarily concerned with being alert to spiritual realities. To live your life with an awareness that Christ is coming soon. And to make decisions accordingly. To have an awareness of when and where temptation will come where the enemy will attack us, and to have the mental resolve to resist those temptations by God's grace in us. You know, I mentioned this quote before, but John Calvin, very beginning of the Institutes of Christian Religion, he says, the beginning of all wisdom is knowledge of God and knowledge of self. You know, I think oftentimes in our gospel preaching churches, praise the Lord, we have a lot of knowledge of God, right? A lot of it. Fill our minds with it. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. But I think it's possible to know much about God and not know very much about ourselves. You know, I can literally, uh, if, if I want to fill my mind with knowledge of God, I can literally pull my phone out right now and pull up some of the best preaching in the world. Literally. And listen to it. I mean, you want to hear good preaching, you know, don't come on Sundays to hear me. <laughs> Please come on Sundays. But pull up a podcast, right? There's way better preachers out there than Austin Baker. Thank you for being here. But I can do that on my phone right now. But I think with all the ways we fill our minds with the good things about God, oftentimes we fail to sit and ponder our own selves, our own tendencies, and our own desires, and our own characteristics. What makes us tick? What brings us joy? What robs us of joy? You know, we have dispositions that we don't think about on a regular basis. We are inclined towards certain behaviors. We don't take time to sit and think about these things. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself on the back end of sinning. I'm sure you have. We all have. But if you've ever found yourself on the back end of sinning, like you've been tempted and you failed, and you then begin to trace, retrace your steps in your mind of, how did I end up in this situation right now? Like, what, what led me to this action that led to this action, led to this action, led to this action, where I find myself right now in a mess. Have you ever found yourself like that? But it's good to sit and ponder those things. Let me give you an example of, of a way to be sober-minded. Um, as you get to know me more, uh, you're going to find out that there, there are probably two or three times a year uh, where I will walk through what I've called, self-titled, called um, times of melancholy in my life two or three times a year. They usually last anywhere from a few days up until a couple of weeks. And I wouldn't call it a full-blown depression. I've, I've walked through that with people I love. I've seen that in people I love, and I don't think it's on quite that scale. But at the same time, these are times in my life where for some unknown reason, I've, I've tried to find reasons, but for some unknown reason, I just become overwhelmingly sad and apathetic and, and down, and unmotivated. And again, completely unrelated to anything in particular, I just find myself in these places. And these periods have happened to me since college. I mean, again, two or three times a year. They just come upon, and and it's happened so regularly since then that I have begun to recognize 
when they're beginning to come. And because I've been able to recognize these things and having the sober-mindedness of these areas in my life, I try to prepare myself for when they come. And so one of the ways I've, I've done that is I have learned to fight for joy. Because there are times in your life where joy is a fight. I mean, you really have to dig down and, and combat, you know, these things in our lives that want to bring us down, bring us low. And one of the ways I've done that is really quite simple. I encourage you to do it too. Even if you don't have periods of melancholy, you're eventually you're going to find yourself having to fight for joy at some point in your life. So one of the things I've done is I took out a sheet of paper one day, and I made two columns. On the left side, I put things that rob me of joy. On the right side, I put things that bring me joy. And I just sat and pondered, what robs me of joy? What in my day-to-day life robs me of feeling the joy of Christ? And I came up with a litany of things. Then, in the right column, what are things that bring me joy? Right? And these don't have to all be spiritual things, necessarily. I mean, a good cup of coffee brings me a lot of joy. All right? Early mornings bring me a lot of joy. Being with my family bring me a lot of joy. When the Braves win, it brings me a lot of joy, right? But I made these two columns. And so when I have these periods of melancholy come on, and with that melancholy, oftentimes temptation comes too. When I have these periods come upon me, I lean into this list. And I go, okay, this is going on right now. I need to fight for this joy. I'm going to avoid these things. I'm going to do these things. Avoid these things. Do these things. It's not rocket science. It's literally two columns on a piece of paper, but it takes a sober-mindedness to look at yourself and go, melancholy's coming, temptation's coming. I need to be ready for this. I need to roll up my sleeves and be sober-minded and prepare for action because these things are coming. I love this picture here that uh, that Peter gives of Jesus coming in verse 13. And as he's coming... He is bringing something. Now look at it again. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, such a small way it reminds me of those times as a kid when my parents would go away on vacation. We'd be at home. And I missed them so much. Right? I just wanted them to come home so much. They'd been away the days went on, the days, and as the days got closer, it seemed like the days grew longer, right? You're like, when are they going to get here? When are they going to come home? And you wait, and you wait, and you anticipate them coming and coming and coming, and then they show up. And the joy you have as a kid when your parents walk through the front door, it's, it's massive. You know, I, I don't want to let them go in those moments because I don't want them to leave again, right? I want them to stay as long as possible, but for me as a kid, when they come through the front door, for most kids, what's the first question you ask? Anybody? You don't know. That's okay. What did you bring me? Right? Did you say that? <laughs> Melanie Johnson? Okay, sorry, Mel. Speak up. Speak up. What did you bring me? Right? Because they're always bringing gifts in tow. My waiting. I'm waiting for them to come. And when they come, my joy is full and they're bringing me something. And that's the picture we have in verse 13. We are waiting and waiting and waiting for Christ to come. And it seems like the days are going longer and longer and longer. But when he comes, we'll be filled with joy. and He'll be coming bringing grace gifts for us. It's amazing. It's an amazing picture Peter's painting here for us. 
But right before Jesus goes to the cross in John chapter 14, he's sitting in the upper room with his disciples and sharing this last Passover feast with them before he dies. And he looks at his disciples and he says in John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's coming, bringing us grace. And he's going to bring us to grace as well. Our hope is in future grace. While at the same time, we live, we live with sober-mindedness and the realism that this world is broken, we prepare ourselves for the battles at hand. And Peter continues on. He gives us two directives on how we're to conduct ourselves here in this world as children of God. So the first thing he says, he writes, as children of God, we resist sin and we pursue holiness. As children of God, we resist sin and we pursue holiness. It's like a negative and a positive, right? Right? Read with me again verses 14 to 16. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter's assuming, if we call ourselves the children of God, he's assuming that we're going to obey our Father. And he says the first way we obey our Father is we abstain from worldly passions. He uses that word here, passions. We abstain from worldly passions. Peter goes on to define many of these passions in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, which we're going to preach on in a few weeks. But he says this, he writes it, I'll go ahead and read it to you. He writes that we should live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, there's the word again, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, there it is again, Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You know, there was a way of life that used to categorize those who were the children of God. And Peter is now exhorting believers, children of God, to not go back to that way of life. Don't go back and be conformed to your former passions. What you were. Don't be conformed to those things. Before you didn't know the ways of God. You're ignorant. You didn't know the ways of God, but now you do. You're no longer ignorant. So don't go back to your time of ignorance. And he says to abstain from those former ways, but at the same time, at the same time, he's also saying not just avoid old ways, but pursue new ways. Don't just stay away from the bad things, pursue the good things. Go after the good. And he says, as children of God, we live holy lives. We live holy lives. Why do we live holy lives? Because our God is a holy God. He is our Father And just as our Father is holy, so the children ought to be holy. But what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be holy? We preached a long sermon on this a few weeks ago on holiness in our reset sermon series. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. We're not going to have time to dive into it as deeply as we did then. But being holy means that we as believers, we bring our minds by God's grace, the power of the Spirit, we bring our minds and our thinking and our behavior in line with God's character. It means that as God is set apart, so we too are set apart. That as He is different, so we too are different. We live holy lives. Peter quotes here Leviticus 19.2. 
in the middle of what's called the holiness code, Leviticus 11 through 20. Just as the people are about to enter the promised land in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, they're to be holy. So we too, as believers awaiting entrance into the new promised land coming for us, we are to be holy, set apart, distinct, different. And this holiness affects everything that we do, everything. You know, our conduct and our character, it demonstrates to the world that we belong to our Father. And if we can't see the Father's traits in one another, maybe we don't have Him as our Father. We've been marked off for special use as the children of God. Special use, distinct use, holy use. You know, we are different, church. We're called to be different, qualitatively different than the rest of the world around us. You know, we've talked each week about how Christianity, this Christian life, is living in the middle of two tensions, right? We've defined a lot of what those tensions are. Peter spells them out here, I feel like, every single week. But we have another one here. We live in the world, but we're not of the world, right? You hold those two things in tension. We live within the broken systems of this fallen humanity, broken family systems, broken government systems, broken racial systems, broken sexuality systems, broken financial systems. On and on we could go. This is our reality that we find ourselves living within. But at the same time, we hold the tension that although living within these systems, we are called to resist these systems oftentimes, to not conform to these systems to be distinct, to be holy, to be set apart. For our Father is distinct and holy and set apart. So we prepare, as we prepare our minds for action, as we abstain from the passions of who we once were, not conform to those passions any longer, we are pursuing holiness in our thoughts and our character and in our conduct. And as we pursue holiness, as we're doing that, we also possess an appropriate fear before our Father, an appropriate fear. And there's three primary reasons in the remainder of our verses why we uh, conduct ourselves with fear before our Father, three reasons. So let's read again verse 17, all right, verse 17. <clears throat> if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So the first reason we possess an appropriate fear before our Father, before our God, is we remember that as our Father, He disciplines us. As our Father, He disciplines us, judges our actions as His children, and brings discipline or brings commendation to us. We all know... Uh, that when mom, we all know that appropriate fear when mom would tell us, hey, go to your room and wait for your dad, right? I heard that a lot, unfortunately. There's fear there. It was not fear that I was going to be disowned as a son, but it was fear that judgment was coming for my actions, that loving discipline was coming for my actions. Simply because he's our father who loves us deeply does not mean he sweeps our sin under the rug or turns a blind eye to it. The penalty for our sin cost him the life of his son. We'll get to that again in just a second. But to discipline us means he loves us enough to bring us more into conformity with who he is because he knows this will be the source of our true joy, our true happiness, 
In Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You know, as any good parent disciplines their children for their good, so God, too, as our Father, he disciplines us, judges our actions, and takes appropriate measures to correct those. Uh, in our um, old neighborhood in Marietta, Georgia, before we moved here, um, it was an area of the city called the Land of a Thousand Walks. And it was an extremely walkable area. It was beautiful, uh, so many places to explore. And so oftentimes, the Land of a Thousand Walks, we'd get our kids together, and we, Christine and I would take our kids on walks, what you do. And there were a couple of streets in particular in this land of a thousand walks that were extremely busy during certain times of the day. And when those times would come, we would, as any good parent would, hold our kids' hands, right, look both ways and cross the street. But there were times where Riley, our oldest, thought it would be a good idea to take measures into her own hands and seek to ignore our rules of hand-holding, and she's way more athletic than I ever will be already as a three-year-old, and so having even catch her is a difficult task, but I would, she would not want to hold our hands as we cross the street. I can do it on my own. I can do it. I can do it by myself. All you parents are like, yeah, I know. I know what that's like. Now, when those times came, what was the most loving thing I could do as her father? Riley, you're three now. So wise and mature, and you definitely know at this point what's best for your life. Please cross this busy street on your own. In fact, why don't you go and play in the street uh, where the cars come? They probably want to play too. It's your choice. You do you. You know what's best for your life. I'm going to step back, and as your loving father, I'm going to let you choose which way you want to go because I just love you so much. That's absurd. I mean, that's insane. No loving parent would do that. No loving parent would let their three-year-old go play in traffic. It's the most unloving thing I can do in that moment. The most loving thing I can do on the other side of that, the most loving thing I can do is when I see that two-ton car heading 40 miles per hour towards my three-year-old who is oblivious to what's going on around her, thinks she knows what's best, thinks she can do it on her own. It's to grab her, pull her out of the street, Give her a huge squeeze and gently correct her and discipline her so she does not do that again. Right? Christianity is not about our personal, autonomous self-fulfillment based on our terms. It's not. We may think we know what's best for us. We don't know what's best for us. Christianity is about God setting the terms for, uh, for your fulfillment and then bringing your life into conformity with his will. That's what Christianity is about, for his glory and for our good. You know, if we truly are children of God, if we truly want to live our lives in accordance with his will, we will live our lives with a healthy fear, knowing that if we step out of God's will and commands, he will correct us as our father and as our judge because he loves us. He'll not disown us. He's adopted us already. He's not putting us up for adoption again. All right? But he will correct us and discipline us because he loves us. So we live our lives with appropriate fear. Second reason we conduct ourselves with fear in exile is that the cost of our redemption stirs up wonder in us. These last two reasons get into the, the awe, the reverence, the wonder, type of fear we have before the Lord. 
Verses 18 and 19, let's read this again. Peter writes, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed. Which means a price was paid to set you free. When somebody gives a ransom to get somebody back, they're paying money, right? Paying a fee to get that person back, to deliver that person from captivity. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in the Greco-Roman world into which Peter's writing, when a, when a slave would seek freedom, he or she would take the money they had earned in their slavery and they would take it to the temple of a god or a goddess and they would give that money into the temple treasury. And then the priests of the temple, after they took their cut, they would then take that money to the master of the slave and hand that money over to free that slave from their captivity. And this was perceived as the god or goddess paying to have that slave released from captivity. But in reality, the slave was using his own money to get himself out of captivity, right? And Peter's going, no. What actually happened here in redeeming you and ransoming you from your bondage to sin is that you were in slavery, you were in bondage to sin under the wrath of God, and your silver or gold, the most precious things in this life that you can afford to have, being brought to the temple could not redeem you from this. You can't pay enough money to ransom yourself from your captivity. But God can. But God doesn't deal with silver and gold. He deals with lifeblood. The lifeblood of His Son. And just like a lamb in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12 was slaughtered, a spotless lamb of God was slaughtered, blood spread on the doorposts of the homes to deliver the people from the wrath of God. So too, the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has been slaughtered to ransom you from your captivity, to deliver you. God has given something infinitely more valuable than anything you could ever pay. Anything. He sent His very Son to ransom you with His life shed his blood on the cross, life for life, and now you are free. God actually did pay your ransom because you could not pay yourself. You've been bought with a price, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Peter here desires to stoke the fires of awe and reverence, of fear. And he's stoking those fires because when we seek to live godly, holy lives, he wants our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of being marked as different by God's grace in us because we want to be like our Father. He wants our pursuit of holiness to be rooted in awe and gratitude. Not in trying to earn anything. Not in trying to pay back anything. You can't pay it back, nor should you try. God has done it out of His free grace for you, and may we behold His work. 
Behold, love John the Baptist, man. John chapter 129. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, gaze at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him. Be in awe of him and the price he paid to set you free. He doesn't want us to abuse our freedom, to use our freedom to promote and live under sin. And I can't tell you how often I hear somebody come to me and say, well, I'll just do this and then I'll just ask for forgiveness tomorrow. You may not be here tomorrow, first off. And secondly, grace is no foundation for sinful liberty. I mean, Paul says as much in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And then he asked the question that we should all ask ourselves. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we still live in it, Christian? How can I still live in it? May we not use our freedom, the freedom, the costly grace of God in Christ. May we not use it to indulge in more sin but rather allow the Holy Spirit to give, our eyes, to give us eyes to see how steep was the price of our redemption. And let it absolutely cause us to gaze in awe and wonder of our God. You realize Christ is going to bear the wounds of the cross for all of eternity. I mean, the nails are going to be in his hand, scarred hands and feet and side and and he chose to bear scars. The spotless Lamb of God chose to bear spots for all of eternity. It cost God so much. May we not abuse it. May we not abuse it, church. May it cause us to just be in awe of Him. Third, third and final way. <clears throat> we trust God to raise us as He raised Christ. Verses 20 and 21. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, for the sake of you, excuse me, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You know, the reason God foreknows us from before time began, that's back in verse 2, first sermon we preached in this sermon series, the reason he foreknows us is because he foreknew how he'd save us. Verse 20, the divine plan of Christ coming to save us, dying the death we deserve to die on the cross, was plan A. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't like God had to figure out a fallback when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This was his plan all along, to bring about more of his glory through Christ on the cross, redeeming, ransoming sinners and calling them children of God. And through Christ, we are able to know God the Father. And our hope and our faith are strengthened in God the Father by looking at Christ's sufferings and His glories. If God raised Jesus from the dead and gave Him glory, will He not also, Romans 8.32, not graciously with Him give us all things? He will raise us up, church. 
He will bestow upon us life eternal, church. Why? Because He gave it to His Son. And the blood of His Son has ransomed us and granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing else that we're waiting on apart from Christ coming. And when He comes, He'll be bringing us grace. May we let the fear of God, the mercy of God, the great love of God, the redemption of God, the grace of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we allow all of these things to propel us forward to live holy lives in this world. May gratitude drive us. May awe drive us. May wonder drive us as we behold our God. May we not live holy lives as legalists to check off our boxes for the day, but may we live holy lives deeply rooted in the fact that our ransom has been paid. May we adopt the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the grace we experience is costly because it cost God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Can't be cheap for us, church. Let's pray together.